Well, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're continuing on in our series, Living Hope in a Hopeless World. As we've been learning, as we've been learning, Peter was writing to a group of Christians who lived across the area of what is today northern Turkey. They had been living in a pagan culture, and they had heard the gospel, and they had come to Christ. They were also being persecuted for their faith, and they had many questions, and they needed to know that they had a hope that they were doing the right thing. Peter writes this letter to encourage these people, to help strengthen their faith, and to remind them that in Jesus Christ they have a living hope and an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, and that they were to live out this hope in front of a world that desperately needs to see it, and sometimes there is a price you pay for that. These Christians to whom Peter wrote were living in a pre-Christian world. The gospel had not yet come to influence societies and nations. And so there was opposition sometimes to the teaching of Christ. You and I are living in a post-Christian world. The world is predominantly not Christian anymore. Our own nation is reflecting that. Now we may have a Christian nation, but many, many people are not living for Christ. And so if you do, sometimes there's a price that you pay for that. Peter said, that should be an encouragement to you. And over the next couple of sections in chapter 4, he's going to remind us that it's something that God is using to accomplish his will. But we need to be prepared. This is the way Peter wrote it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless and wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. God, thank you for this word. It's the opposite of what we're often taught and even come to expect, that somehow suffering has a plan and a purpose that is for good. And if we understand it, it helps prepare us for whatever may come. I pray, God, today that you'll help us to see even more clearly what it means to have the hope of living for God. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen. When I was a Boy Scout, we had a motto, be prepared. 
And it works apparently not only for Boy Scouts, but also if you're serving in the Peace Corps. John Ortberg, pastor at Menlo Park Press, was sharing in a message about a training manual he came across for volunteers in the Peace Corps who are headed for South America. Now, this section has got to be fictitious, although maybe this is real training for people who are going to South America to be prepared for a chance encounter with an anaconda. Now, an anaconda is a huge boa constrictor. It tracks down its prey, it wraps around it, squeezes the life out of it, and then swallows it whole. And so here's what it said about how to prepare for an anaconda attack. Ten things. First, if you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Three, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight against one another. Fourth, the snake will begin to climb over your body to sense if you are, in fact, dead. Do not panic. Sixth, the snake will begin to swallow you from the feet end. Step seven. Step six will take a long time. Step eight, after a while, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the snake's mouth, and then suddenly sever the snake's head. Number nine, be sure your knife is sharp. <laughs> Number 10, be sure you have a knife. <laughs> Anybody for South America? Anyway. Orberg went on to say, you never really know what curves life will throw at you, what's lurking around the corner. But when you are called to hardship, and you will be called, you need to know what to do. If you wait until a crisis hits, because it will hit, you've waited too long. You need to be prepared first. That's the message Peter was writing to these Christians who were scattered across northern Turkey and facing persecution. Peter told them not to be surprised when hardship hit, but instead be ready for it and prepared. And the way you are prepared is that you are living for God. That's why he said in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Arm yourselves, he said. That phrase literally is prepare yourself with a weapon, a weapon for battle. The weapon that helps us in the battle is having a Christ-like perspective and attitude, Peter said. And Jesus was prepared for his suffering because he knew God had called him to it. That was his purpose. So, Peter said, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Understand, you're not going to escape suffering. It comes in various forms. Suffering is necessary. It has a purpose. In fact, in many of these trials, we learn the greatest things about God and the greatest things about ourselves. So, since this suffering is necessary, arm yourselves with the same attitude Jesus had. That suffering is necessary, and if I live for Jesus in a world that doesn't know him, it may bring on a whole new level of suffering. 
So I need to be prepared to suffer in my body as Jesus was prepared to suffer in his. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin, Peter said. And it doesn't mean we're sinless. I still sin and so do you. In fact, 1 John chapter 1 says if we sin, we confess those sins to God. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. Christians still sin. But if you have suffered in the body, you are done with sin. Not meaning you no longer sin, but sin no longer has mastery over you. You don't live for sin anymore. Now we live for God. We are done living for sin and self, and now by our willingness to embrace suffering as part of God's purpose for us, we demonstrate that we're living for God and not for sin. Because when you know you're living for God, it builds and deepens your hope. In fact, it gives you a living hope, Peter said in chapter 1. Peter reminds us that we have a living hope when we see our life purpose of living for God. And what does living for God look like? Well, Peter said, living to see God's will done and not our own. And living for eternity and not just for the moment. We have the hope of living for God when we live to see God's will done and not our own. In verse 1, Peter said, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless and wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. When I was 16, I are approaching 16, I got my first real job. In our small New England town, I took a job at the only grocery store, Marandino Foods. Now, Marandino Foods was owned by a delightful Italian couple named Biaz and Evelyn Marandino. And they took a risk hiring me on for my first job, but they did, and they paid the going wage at the time, $1.20 an hour. I think this was like in 1910. Anyway, <laughs> when I came to work, I didn't clock in to do whatever I felt like doing. You know, I talk to employers today, and they tell me one of the hardest things they have is hiring people who want to come in but don't want to do what they want done. They want to do what they want to do. They want to work on their schedule, not the boss's schedule. He said it, they say it's so frustrating. It's like a trend. Well, when I checked into work, I didn't check in to do whatever I wanted to do. I clocked in and went over to found, and found out what Mr. Marandino wanted done. It was very apparent that he was paying my time and I was working for him, not for me. And if over time you didn't do the things he wanted done, he could come and say, thank you, but I will no longer be needing your services. What he was really telling us, in other words, is you signed on to help me to get my work done, but if you really want to work to do what you want to get done, then you need to go start your own grocery store. You see, in a much more significant way, that's what Peter was saying to these former pagans about becoming Christians and living for God. 
Peter told them that when hardships come, don't complain because you're not living to see your will done. You've signed on to see God's will done. And if God is accomplishing his will in your suffering, then Peter will later tell them in chapter 4, you ought to learn to rejoice in that. Very different perspective. So many people, when hardship hits, we begin blaming God and their faith starts suffering and they fall away when in reality, Paul said, or Peter said, when suffering comes and you understand that God is in it and what he's accomplishing in it, it'll fuel your faith. That's why he told him in verse 1, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires but rather for the will of God. For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, Peter told them, if you want to have the living hope that Jesus offers, then you need to arm yourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. And what was that attitude? Jesus didn't live to see his will done. He lived to get the Father's will done. Do you remember in John 5, verse 30, Jesus said, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Later on in John 6, verse 38, he said, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus even taught his disciples to pray that in their lives, God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. You remember in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was how Jesus prayed in the garden the night before he went to the cross. Mark 14, verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Daddy, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, that's why Peter said, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And Peter contrasts this desire to do God's will as the difference between those who live for God and those who don't. In fact, in verse 3, he said, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter tells them, when you were pagans, 
and you didn't know God, you chose to live like pagans do. You lived to please yourself. You engaged in all kinds of debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, idolatry, of all kinds. Because that's what pagans do. But now that you're in Christ, you can choose to live as Jesus does. And he lives to do God's will. And if you live for God like Jesus lived for God, then the pagan world will treat you like they treated Jesus. They're going to be surprised that you no longer want to join with them in their sin. They may heap abuse on you, and they may even, you may even face persecution. That was my experience when I became a Christian. I don't want to air out a long, laundry list of sins. I'm embarrassed by it and ashamed. But I was living a pagan life. And when Christ came into my life, suddenly I began to see that some of these things I'm doing just aren't right. It's called conviction. The Spirit of God says, man, you, you can't do that. It's not right. So you begin telling your friends, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I mean, I love you and I care about you and I'm willing to spend time with you, but I, I'm not going to do that. They didn't get it. A lot of them didn't get it. So they begin calling you names and they begin ridiculing you and trying to shame you and to participate. They don't understand why you're not doing that anymore. And some don't want anything to do with me. So they said, we're done. They didn't want to be around me. You know what I learned in that experience? The people that were really my friends remained my friends even though they didn't fully understand my commitment to Christ. And the ones who only wanted me to sin with them or what they could get out of me to do that were the ones who left. They weren't my real friends at all. Sometimes if you live for God, Peter said, they're going to heap abuse on you. And do you know why the pagan world responds in this way? It isn't because God's ways are wrong. They're not. Their ways are, his ways are always right. It's just that when people live for God, God's light shines in them and exposes the sin that others are living in, and they don't like it. In fact, they hate it. Remember what John wrote in John 3, verse 19? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Some people who hate the light, Peter said, are going to try to extinguish that light by extinguishing you. But they're going to answer to God for their treatment of you and their rejection of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's coming from your life. They're going to be held accountable for that. That's why he said in verse 5, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Peter said, this is why we preach the gospel to them, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Not only will it save some who hear it, but it will bring judgment to those who hear it and reject it. That's why he said in verse 6, for this is the reason the gospel was preached. 
even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. You see, the judgment will not only bring sinners into account, but it will also show and vindicate that the Christians who have believed the gospel and died believing that gospel were doing God's will and living for God. And by human standards, people who die in the body are dead, but not by God's standards. People who die believing the gospel and live for God are not dead. They are very much alive, and they will be alive forever living with God. Do you remember in chapter 3, we talked about the whole fact of we have a hope that we're going to live forever with God because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient payment for our sins and his resurrection, sufficient guarantee of our victory. Now in chapter 4, Peter says, not only are we going to live with God and have that hope, we who live for God have that hope. So Peter tells these persecuted Christians, arm yourselves with the same attitude Jesus had. We don't live for sin. We live for God. If we live for God, we may suffer. And if we suffer, be encouraged. God is working his will in you, and you have the living hope of those who are living for God. And not only living to see God's will done and not our own, but we have the hope of living for God when we live not just for the moment, but in the light of eternity. Peter said in verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We make choices in the light of eternity, not just in the moment. I was reading a piece that Victor Lee wrote in Sports Spectrum. It was reprinted in a magazine called Men of Integrity. It was talking about a time in 2001 when Mike McLaughlin, who raced on the NASCAR Bush circuit before he retired, had a crew chief named Tim Schutt. Tim and Mike raced with the Joe Gibbs team. Joe Gibbs, former, own, or former owner, former coach of the Washington Redskins, is a very outspoken Christian. He has very high standards for his teams. Well, Tim Schutt, the, the crew chief, decided that he was going to put a little enhancement on one of Mike McLaughlin's cars. And he said, everybody does it. That was his justification. In fact, he said, Joe Gibbs, team owner, is adamant that we don't cheat, said Schutt. But the problem was that Schutt had become a Christian now. He was a believer who had encountered Christ at a Christian retreat for participants in the racing industry. Most teams figure as long as you get away with stuff, it's not cheating, he said. That was the standard. So I said to Mike McLaughlin that morning in practice, if we don't do good in practice, I'll put this piece on, this illegal piece. Probably 30 other teams are doing it. I was justifying it. And sure enough, he said, I got up under the car. I was halfway putting on that illegal piece, and a verse came to my mind. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
He said it was like a flashing red light on my dashboard in front of me. And I thought, whoa, this is it. And he said, I'm leaving this up to you, God. And he took that part off. Well, in 2001, the race was Talladega, and McLaughlin won that race, if you're a NASCAR fan. And when we won, the first thing that came to my mind, Tim Schutz said, was God wanted to show himself to me. Do you know what happened to that crew chief that day when he was under the car? He made a choice in the light of eternity. He made a choice not just in the light of NASCAR rules, but he saw that he was accountable for something much greater than NASCAR or winning a race. He saw that choice in the light of eternity. That we will give account to God for everything. So we are to live to please him. That's what Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. See, because when you live in the light of eternity, it changes the way you live in the here and now. That's what Peter was relating to these believers to whom he wrote. You see, there comes a time in all of our lives when we have to see our lives in the light of eternity. That it isn't just for the moment. That choices we make have eternal consequences. For me, that decision point came a number of years ago. When I realized for the first time that my highest incentive to want to live for God was not out of fear of what God would do to me if I didn't. It was the fear of what I would do to God if I didn't. You see, I had spent enough time in the past, as Peter mentioned, hurting God by the way I was living without even knowing it. I had spent enough time as a Christian still making sinful, selfish choices that were hurting God without my knowing it. But when I came to realize that how I'm living has a direct reflect on God himself, living in the light of eternity changed the way I was living here. Because you see, someday I'm going to see Jesus face to face. And I don't want to come to him with a life of regrets and selfishness. I don't want to come with a long laundry list of continued hurt that I've put upon God. I want to come and say, God, I haven't lived a perfect life. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. But here's the point when I really started living for you and not for me. And I hope you are honored by what I sought to do. Yeah, well, that's a choice all of us are, have. That's, that's a choice each of us have an eternal perspective that changes the way we live. Peter reminded these people that we who live for God live in the light of eternity, and eternity is closer than we think. That's why he said in verse 7, the end of all things is near. The end of all things. 
He's using a word to describe the end of all things as we know it is coming to an end and the dawn of Christ truly being seen as Lord of all is coming. It's, in fact, he wrote that phrase in the Greek perfect tense, which means he has already drawn near to the end. All is in readiness. Jesus' return is imminent. We are to live each day in the light of his soon and sure return. We, we are to be living each day so that in any moment we're ready for his coming. To live each day that in any moment he chooses to come, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed. Jesus, come right now or tomorrow at 9 or Tuesday at 3 because when you come, I will be living for you in that moment in whatever situation I'm in. That's what Peter's describing. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 35, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, will come and wait on them. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. I drove to San Jose yesterday to see my 95-year-old mother-in-law. Had a great visit. I love going where she's staying because there's a lot of older ladies there. One of them called me a hunk yesterday, first time in... <laughs> First time in my life. Uh, anyway, when I'm driving, when we're driving to San Jose, I always try to drive the speed limit. And uh, it's interesting. When I'm driving along, I'm not worried about cops. I'm not worried about if there's a CHP up ahead or somebody with a radar gun on the overpass because I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So if they're up there, I can wave or whatever, but I, I don't fear them because they've got no reason to stop me. So I'm not afraid of seeing them. Peter's telling these people, live in such a way that when Jesus comes and his coming is near, live in such a way that when he comes, you don't have to worry about his coming. You look forward to it because you're ready. You're living ready. When you live for God, you live in the light of eternity. That everything matters, and we no longer live as we did when we were pagans. In fact, when Paul wrote to Titus, he told them, live your life in such a way that you're ready for the blessed hope of Christ's return. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So Peter goes on to describe how we should live for God in the light of eternity. Verse 7, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. 
The word alert is literally the phrase abstain from wine. Pretty interesting. He's not telling people don't drink wine. What he's telling them is this. Don't let anything dull your sensitivity to God. Don't be controlled by other things. Let your mind be controlled by God. Be sober-minded. Be in your right mind. See things accurately so you can pray, so you can keep that vital, close connection with God without distortion and hearing him clearly and praying effectively. Verse 8, he said, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers over, love hides a multitude of sin. It doesn't mean that Christians go around pretending sin doesn't exist or occasionally confronting people with it. He's referring to the fact that love doesn't broadcast people's sins. It bears their burdens. It demonstrates grace. It comes alongside those who are struggling in the same sin we once struggled in. And it come alongside and we share God's grace with them and the truth of his forgiveness. The focus is not on their sin at that point. It's confronting them with the grace of God and his love so that they can be saved from the very sin that's destroying them. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know, this is uh, more than sharing a cup of coffee and a donut with somebody. Um, in the pagan culture there, uh, in the Jewish culture, it was common to offer hospitality to strangers, but not in the pagan culture. So here in this pagan culture, people are coming to Jesus. Many of them are losing their jobs, being cut off from their families, finding themselves homeless. There are no social agencies. There are no welfare programs. The people didn't look to government. They looked to the church, the believers. So it was important for these believers to understand their responsibility to these folks who are being disenfranchised because of their faith in Christ. The word hospitality is literally the phrase, be a lover of strangers. So even though you may not know some of these people well, bring them into, their, into your home. If some of them are unbelievers or family members who are not yet saved, they're going to see the love of God in you. And the way you treat them, without grumbling about it, is going to demonstrate the love of God. Look at verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. People, Christianity isn't a spectator sport. When you became a Christian, you signed on. And so God gave you gifts and abilities. Some of those were natural. You had them when you were born, but they're special gifts he gives when people come to Christ. And he wants those gifts to be used for his body in the furtherance of his work in the world. When we do that, we are demonstrating we are stewards of the grace God has given us with these gifts and abilities. And these things were given for his purpose, not our own. And to hold them back is not our right. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, the power forever and ever. Amen. When you speak, speak in a way that people will hear the very words of God. It's not your mouth anymore, it's God's mouth. Serve in God's strength. If you only serve in the ways you think you can do, you will never see the fullness of what God can do. 
So many people say, well, I can do that. I'll help over there. I can do that. I'll help over there. Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. So they miss out on all these things that God may want to use them in, and a chance to, for him to display his strength. So I tell people all the time, volunteer for something you don't think you can do. And let God show you his strength in that. And you know what? When God shows the strength and that thing is done, it won't be you getting the glory. It'll be God getting the glory because you and everybody else are going to know there's no way they could do that on their own. God has done that. And there's no limit to how he can display his strength. People who live like this are living for God in the light of eternity. And the result is that God is praised through Jesus Christ, which is the goal and the joy of everyone who truly lives for God. Peter said in verse 11, the last part, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Very soon we're going to have a new president. I wish we had better choices, as many of you do. There are a lot of issues. There are a lot of issues at stake. Uh, you may not be able to vote for a candidate, but we are obligated to get informed about the various parties and the platforms and what they stand for, because I can tell you there are two very different directions for America. It's not just about the two people at the top. I wish we had better choices. I was, um, if you've been around a while, uh, if you lived in the days of Ronald Reagan, you remember a man who wasn't perfect, uh, but he loved America, he had a clear vision, and our country was raised under his leadership to a place that we haven't been in a long time. When he gave his first inaugural address, January 20, 1981, by the way, if you want to go back and listen to it, uh, you will hear a tone and a man talking about things that you wonder, where in the world did this go? In his first address, he referenced some simple white grave markers that were across the river in Arlington National Cemetery. And this is what he said. And by the way, if you watch it, I think at this point his voice began to break. Under one such marker lies a young man named Martin Treptow who left his job in a small-town barbershop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary, and on the flyleaf under the heading, he wrote, My Pledge. And he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. And I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. Did Martin Treptow really believe that the outcome of World War I rested solely on his shoulders? No, of course not. He just lived like it did. And President Reagan used him as an example because he was a man who didn't live for himself. He lived for his country. 
He was living for more than himself. And it was that attitude that prepared him to fight, to sacrifice, and even to die cheerfully. When I read that, and this, I had to ask myself the question, Larry, who are you living for? What are you living for? What about you? Who or what are you really living for? Peter reminded these Christians they were called to live for God. To live for God by living not to see their will done, but to see God's will done. To live for God by living not just for the moment, but in the light of eternity. And those who live for God like that would be arming themselves to be ready and prepared for whatever comes. They would bring praise and glory to the God they serve, and they would have a living hope in a hopeless world. It's the hope of knowing you are living for God, no matter what the future may bring. Father, thank you. I have a lot to learn about this. But we do not live for ourselves. We live for you. And we do not live for the moment. Everything matters for eternity now. Lord, I want to thank you for the dear people in this room and the many who are watching online right now all over the world. If we are believers, we have the spirit of the living Christ living in us. And Jesus, you are living your life out through us. And one of the reasons the world is so dark spiritually is that many times as Christians we're afraid to live in the light as he is in the light for fear of what may happen. And what we're learning from Peter is we're not to fear what may happen. We are to expect it welcome it and to know that it's part of God's purpose in reaching a lost world and forming us into the image of his son. So Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for speaking to us a perspective we're not going to get anywhere else. And help us to live ready for the blessed hope, the great and glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we thank you today in your precious name. Amen.